Great, welcome everyone uh, to the third talk of the Institute seminar series on democracy and governance in the Americas. I'm very pleased to be welcoming uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. Ursula Hackett of uh, Royal, Royal Holloway, who's giving a paper entitled Policy Delinking, How Policymakers Protect Controversial Policies in Court. So please Great. go ahead. Thanks so much, Nadia. Um, and thank you, Nestor, also for the invitation to speak. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you today. I'm going to share my screen now. Um, Oh, I see that um, I have I'm not able to share my screen. I think perhaps I need some permissions there ah. in order to. Maybe you need to be a co-presenter or something. I think that might be it. Ah, uh, let's uh, let's see if we can. Um... I oh, there we go. Ah, yep. Nice. We're well, fine. Well OK, so I hope you can see my screen uh, now. I'm going to um, start my presentation here. There we go. So, um, well, thanks so much for the invitation. And um, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to talk to you about my research on the strategic interactions between American state legislators and the courts. And um, I'm going to draw in this presentation primarily upon my uh, a recent paper that I've written on uh, uh, the politics of abortion and gun control. But I'm also going to draw, I think, from some of the work I published um, in my book, America's Voucher Politics, How Elites Learn to Hide the State, the paperback version of which is out in January the 6th, um, uh, in which I uh, describe the situation that led to the expansion, the rapid expansion, particularly over the last decade or so, in the number of school voucher programs across the US. And these programs that offer a sum of public money to spend, the parents to spend on private education for their um, children. And the puzzle that animates the book is, you know, how did this happen? How did these programs pass and then survive, given that they face such formidable legal obstacles, constitutional obstacles? And the answer that I uh, identify in this book is that policymakers, conservative policymakers, learned tactically, patiently, iteratively over the course of a long, uh, many, many decades about the sorts of policy designs and the sorts of rhetorical strategies that would allow them to um, uh, defend those policies most successfully in court and to insulate them from legal challenge. Um, so I'm going to draw on those um, on um, that work. But I want to start by um, with, with Texas's SB8 heartbeat law. And I'm sure many of you, of course, will have been following the, um, this, the, the course of this particular piece of legislation. Um, of course, this is, a, this is a piece of legislation that um, bans abortion after six weeks of gest gestation, approximately when the fetal heartbeat can be, um, can be detected. Um, and in a, a shocking move on the September the 1st this year, the federal Supreme Court um, refused to block, block enforcement of that law in a way that it had done for other uh, equivalent pieces of legislation. And the reason that it was able to do that was because Texas took a very creative, strategic approach to that law, which is that they, in, they outsourced enforcement of that law to private citizens. Um, such that, you know, so instead of having government officials actually um, uh, uh, enforcing the law, they had 
private citizens are encouraged to sue abortion providers or those that that, that help people to procure abortions um and to uh, there are sort of there are there, there's a, a fund that's available for people who are doing that um and so um they can claim in court that no government official is involved in the um in the execution and the enforcement of that law and that's what enabled the uh, a bare majority of the supreme court to find that uh, that that law can go into effect, of course, it went into effect immediately. Um, in dissent, Chief Justice John Roberts argued, and I quote, the desired consequence appears to be to insulate the state from responsibility and, and that the courts should consider whether a state can avoid responsibility for its laws in such a manner. Um, and I think that this case is one of a much broader class of instances in which policymakers have acted in a very creative and strategic way to hide the role of the state in producing particular controversial policy outputs. Now they can do this in a variety of different ways. And I talk about in my voucher work about the ways in which policymakers have used the tax system to deliver particular benefits, to privatize, to delegate in the, the um, uh, 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 provision of a particular benefit in order to attenuate the connection between on the one hand the state uh, governmental action on the one hand and then some sort of controversial policy output on the other whether that's a benefit to in an early instances a segregated schooling and later religious schools of course as establishment clause um, uh, legal questions that arise there so there uh, but, th but this is all part of a broader story here about ways in which the state's role has been uh, obscured by means of these indirect approaches to governance, whether that is through segregationists um, uh, privatizing the white primary when the white primary was outlawed, unconstitutional, um, um, that saying that these are these are private entities. This is not state action. Privatizing swimming pools, recreation facilities, and so on, um, and transferring it to public private hands in order to avoid the the imprimatur of the state. Um, but lest you think that this is only a conservative maneuver, I would say that there have been instances in which liberals have sought out these attenuated, indirect, subtler ways of achieving their aims, whether that's during the 1980s when you have the backlash against affirmative action and you get the sort of and race conscious approaches to public policy making more generally, and you have policymakers seeking out you know, um, uh, Section 8 housing voucher schemes and supporting those rather than the sort of direct subsidy of the of the public, of public housing, but to subsidize the individual to use their private choice to direct the benefit to uh, in the private marketplace. And even more recently, if you see in the um, litigation that followed the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and the particular controversy that arose over the contraceptive mandate, which religious organizations saying that this is this is a violation of our our, um, our religious beliefs. And so the um, Obama administration is forced to argue in court that we're not going to simply require you to provide the contraceptive coverage, but we're going to allow you to simply signal your opposition. And that's going to trigger a process by which um, some third party organization is going to provide the, the coverage to employees. And so there are all sorts of situations in which it is expedient, I would argue, for legislators to hide the role of the state in these different ways. And what I'm going to elucidate in this particular paper is, is that you can, you can engage in these privatization maneuvers, these delegation maneuvers. You can also um, uh, try to disavow controversial intentions 
and deny controversial effects. And what I'm calling this is this idea of delinking policy. Why am I calling it that? Well, because um, if we think about in a sort of very broad and schematic sense about what we understand by public policy making, we might think about, about it as a relationship between choices that are made by those in power, authoritative government action by policymakers, um, resulting in a particular set of policy outputs, that is the programs, the policies that are created, and with a set an array of costs and benefits to particular constituencies that we think of the outcomes, right, of, of all this. And so in order to delink policy, as I'm calling it, you can break the link or at least break the appear to break the link between either choices and outputs or between outputs and outcomes or both. Um, and this is the way to try and provide some plausible deniability in court as to whether it truly is government state action that is producing a particular program with a particular set of um, results. So there are two different stages. Let me just go through these and I'll talk to you about how I propose to investigate this empirically. The first of these is this connection between policy choices that government actors are making and the intentions behind those and then these policy outputs, um, these programmes. And so um, it is, of course, important in many cases for policymakers to explicitly disclaim particular intentions. I mean, President Trump, for example, sought to do that with respect to his travel ban. Um, uh, the fact that he spoke openly about a Muslim ban was part of the reason that he drew First Amendment challenge um, and that judges, lower court judges at least, were able to um, alleged discriminatory um, animus, religious and racial animus that underpinned that particular um, that particular program. Um, you can see in the cases of abortion, um, for instance, we have the, the, these programs being um, uh, justified as, as women's health measures. We can see people who oppose amnesty and so on for concern, thinking in terms of concern for native born workers, commitment to the rule of law as opposed to some sort of racial animus. You see this with respect to some of the electoral laws, um, uh, uh, voter identification laws and things talking about integrity of elections as opposed to um, uh, you know, any kind of uh, discriminatory um, uh, uh, animus that might underpin restrictive voting practices. Um, so there's, an, there's a question here about intent, and there's also a question here about um, the sort of delivery mechanisms that you use to actually create that policy, whether you're using, um, since constitutional rights, largely speaking, are secured against the government and not against private parties, it is extremely powerful for you in court to be able to allege that you have a private delivery mechanism that this regulation is indirect and thus you can deny that the state is actually involved in this particular um, uh, uh, in this particular program. And I see when I spent a lot of time speaking to many legislators, advocates, policymakers across the US with for my voucher work, I see um, people talking quite candidly about the sorts of policy designs that they are adopting specifically with this downstream legal battles in mind. You know, this is seen as the most palatable way of doing it. We're trying not to lose in this court situation. We want to do something that won't be challenged. We don't think you're funding the programme directly and thus that 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 attenuated chain, you have the state on the one hand and the um, the uh, a private school on the other, that uh, that, that can help you to um, support it in court. But it's not just about policy design, it's also about your communications about that programme. You have to be very careful about how you speak about these programmes. Um, you need to, first of all, you know, 
take the emphasis off those particular the particular outcomes take the focus off the schools um you know others see sort of see a um uh, uh some uh, hypocrisy here this is thinking about voucher bills you know really it's a voucher bill they call it a scholarship fund but it's a duck to duck um, but nevertheless, in court, these sorts of communication strategies can help you to try and make the case that this is not really um, uh, uh, going to be have unconstitutional effects. Um, you need to talk also about um, efforts to try to uh, obscure your own intentions, your these particular any kind of unconstitutional intention. I and mean, we see this in particular with respect to the white supremacists, the segregationists in the aftermath of Brown v. Board, who are creating these tuition grant voucher programs. Um, and of course, also privatizing these various other institutions, these other public institutions in a way, in such a way as to try to seek to evade desegregation. But they're very, very bad about hiding their intentions in uh, in public. So they're, they're saying things like, you know, well, we're going to create these um, programs. It's to keep the school segregated, despite the federal government, the brainwashers and the communists, you know. And so and the courts are, are drawing attention to this disjuncture between the rhetoric and maybe some of the policy design elements in, uh, in such a way as to expose that, that intention um, and to strike them down as unconstitutional. But it's not just at that first stage, of course, this is about denying a particular intention, it's about denying authoritative government action. But there's another way in which you can seek to de-link policy, and that is at the second stage. So to think about if you can argue in court that there is only limited effects, limited controversial effects, that it's targeted only at a very small population, that you can create a regulation that has is officially neutral, which might have disparate impact effects, um, but which doesn't seem to have those broader consequences. Um, for instance, we saw this, of course, famously with respect to the um, Trump travel ban, the Supreme Court holds that to be constitutional in Trump versus Hawaii on the basis, in part, that this policy covers just a mere 8% of the world's Muslims, and thus um, we can render that, that program constitutional. Um, and so you can sort of deny that connection between some sort of neutrally written law or regulation and some sort of controversial consequence, whether that is um, closing um, gun ranges, whether that's restricting the, the access to abortion, whether that is providing a benefit to a segregated or later a religious, a religious school. Um, so I've tried to sort of schematize these and you think about this, um, uh, the array of options that are uh, that are available to policymakers when they are considering how they might act in these various fields. So I'm, let's take abortion first. Um, and um, of course, after Roe v. Wade, a direct ban upon abortion is a risky maneuver because you are um, uh, uh, you, you you risk um, obviously violating Roe and being Roe v. Wade and being um, and being struck down as unconstitutional. But there are a variety of indirect and subtler ways in which you can seek to restrict access to abortion um, in ways that might be more constitutionally acceptable. So, for instance, you can you can try to nudge. Um, uh, uh, women to forego the procedure, procedure through sort of waiting periods and looking at ultrasounds and sort of requiring to go to the clinics twice and that sort of thing. Um, the, after uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the 1992, where we have a, a, the substitution of a sort of undue burden standard in abortion law, that becomes a really important um, uh, part of judges and justices' decision-making in these cases. And they're saying, well, do we have, um, is there an undue burden being presented? And if you're regulating these practices in a more indirect fashion, then you are less likely to fall afoul of that particular undue burden standard. But there are even more 
subtler ways in which you can try to restrict access to abortion, and that is through these targeted regulations of abortion providers, trap laws known to their, their opponents as trap laws, where you are regulating, at least ostensibly in the interest of women's health, the uh, providing for admission privileges for these clinics with hospitals, uh, relations um, regulations related to room size or corridor width and, and so on. Um, now, lest you think that I am concerned primarily with conservative uh, approaches um, uh, to policymaking, I'd like to also draw an analogy here with some of the approaches that have been made by liberals with respect to the politics of gun control. And of course, under the current um, I, mean, I mean, even as even back as far as the 1934, where we have the National Firearms Act and you have the the efforts on the part of Congress to try to ensure that though those legislative efforts to try and um, uh, regulate guns would be acceptable as a as, as a, um, a a usage of the of Congress's commerce uh, uh, power under the Commerce Clause. You have the Attorney General at the time, Homer, Homer Cummings, explaining that gun control measure would be based on the tax power in anticipation of constitutional challenges. He's saying, if we made a, a statute, this is a quote, if we made a statute absolutely forbidding any human being to have a machine gun, you might say there is some constitutional question involved. But when you say we will tax the machine gun, you are easily within the law. His interlocutor says, in other words, it does not amount of prohibition, but allows of regulation. Cummings says, that's the idea. We've studied that very carefully. Um, so there are ways in which you might regulate guns, of course, more directly through a simple ban on particular possession within a jurisdiction. Um, but of course, especially since um, uh, 2008, um, and it's DC versus Heller, and of course, um, there is, it, it, those maneuvers become riskier for policymakers who are seeking to um, uh, restrict gun access. And so there are various indirect regulations that you can that, that, that legislators have adopted to try to nudge people in the direction um, uh, uh, reducing access um, to these firearms, but also of regulating those providers as well, using nuisance and environmental laws to apply them to gun ranges and stores and shows, uh, providing some burdensome administrative requirements that providers um, need to adhere to um, in, in a way that, and, and what we know from bo on both the abortion case and in the case of gun control, that there are effects of these indirect regulations. And it is the case that the provision of these more burdensome regulations has the effect of reducing the availability of abortion, the availability of, of guns within a particular jurisdiction. So how does it work in court? Um, well, um, it's about breaking the connection, or at least attempting to, appear, appearing to break the connection between authoritative state action and these constitutionally um, suspect um, uh, policies, and trying to sort of persuade justices and judges that the statute's motivation was emphatically not to prevent women from accessing abortion, to infringe Second Amendment rights, to disenfranchise certain voters, to support private, religious or segregated education. Um, John Paul Stevens, actually, when he was on the Seventh Circuit um, uh, in, in, a, in a gun rights, uh, a gun control case, used a um, used a very interesting phrase, which is he says that this, this, the use of a third party's legitimate discretion in denying a gun sale breaks the chain of constitutional uh, causation. So um, uh, there are various tactics that I think that policymakers have adopted in many cases successfully to try to enable, um, uh, to, to circumvent some of this, um, uh, uh, these um, constitutional objectives, uh, objections. Um, so um, uh, <clears throat> if you 
can also characterize those laws as having a valid purpose with only incidental effects upon a protected right, then also you have the possibility of being able to um, uh, protect them more easily in court. If you can allege the downstream burden of those particular policies is small, it's easily ameliorated, um, then you have a chance. Um, there is no constitutional objection to a purely private hospital allowing um, uh, refusing to allow their facilities to be used for abortion. Um, uh, there is, a, if you if you charge a fee to federal firearm firearm licensees for background checks, that is constitutional because uh, courts have determined because licensees are private entities and buyers are not affected by state action. But then on this on the second side, this later stage, the outputs to outcomes, um, even quite a substantial burden can pass constitutional muster if you can allege that it is not eliminating a right to abortion or to gun possession. Um, a New York court in 1979 held that these clinic regulations that uh, interfere with obtaining an abortion are okay, they're constitutional because women are still free to decide whether or not to terminate a particular pregnancy. Um, safe storage requirements for guns have been sort of held to be constitutional on the grounds that, that they burden only the manner in which someone exercises a constitutional right rather than the fundamental right itself. Um, but the more obvious the effects, the harder it is for policymakers to plausibly deny them in court. Um, uh, uh, certainly you've had these particularly egregious examples where, um, for instance, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker sort of, you know, signed into um, into law on a Friday a bill requiring hospital admitting privileges of all the abortion clinics in the state by the following Monday. Um, of course, even if it hadn't been a weekend, this process takes months, and it's not at the discretion of the clinic. And so it was quite obviously an effort to uh, 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 to close all those abortion clinics. Of course, that was the effect. And so that on that basis, the um, courts are easily find that unconstitutional. You see these sorts of um, reasoning also in cases on gun rights, um, even when uh, legis uh, uh, legislators have sought to use zoning laws, for example, to try and, uh, um, in, uh, as judges have said, redline gun stores out of existence. Judges have drawn that, um, that connection. There was a, a Massachusetts court that decided that um, to the decision to place abortion clinics on the list of prohibited uses of industrial parks alongside junkyards, piggeries, trailer camps, and so on, and in quote, would be in substance the same had the regulation taken the more obviously grotesque form of zoning out of the town, the private offices of any physicians who proposed to perform lawful first trimester abortions there. Um, so um, there's the more obvious the effects, the harder it is for policymakers to plausibly deny them in court. Um, but if they're able to target and to, 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 um, uh, focus their policy on particular um, uh, smaller populations, they might be more likely to be able to uphold it um, in court as constitutional. So I'm going to test, this is, this is a, uh, a, a, a statistical um, analysis that underpins this paper, um, through two original databases um, on individual judges and justices' decisions in abortion cases and gun control cases in order to identify <clears throat> How tolerant are judges and justices of these various different forms of regulation of these different practices? And I've got these um, uh, 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 original databases that I've collated over the course of the last, um, the, the modern period really of abortion um, uh, uh, jurisprudence and of gun control jurisprudence over the course of many, many decades. And the dependent variable here is whether the judge or justice votes to uphold or to strike down that particular um, regulation. So any po positive coefficient you see will represent 
variables that are associated with support for abortion restrictions or for um, gun control measures. And um, what we know um, uh, and what becomes abundantly clear through my own analysis of these two um, databases I've collated is that the partisanship has an enormous role to play. And I think that we can certainly see that the partisanship of the judge or justice or their elected appointer, which of course is a very good proxy for judicial partisanship, is strongly statistically significantly effect, uh, related to their decision in these cases over the course of this, um, this period of time. But even controlling for that partisan um, uh, uh, affiliation, there is a role for policy design. So here are the effects for abortion um, uh, 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 regulations. You can see how I've got all these different character, uh, different categories of abortion regulation. Um, and you can see here the difference of the probability that a particular policy will be upheld in comparison to a full a, a ban, a ban on um, abortion. And what you can see is that for the most part, although not for every single category there, indirect regulations of abortion, um, things like informed consent laws, parental consent laws, uh, Medicaid bans, a ban on using Medicaid funds to actually procure an abortion, um, and, and so on, record keeping um, rules, rules about disposal, rules about build, building um, requirements and so on, all of these sort of targeted regulation of abortion providers, those are much more likely to be upheld as constitutional than a direct ban on abortion would be. <clears throat> and you see the same dynamic with respect to the politics of gun control as well. I mean, you see that um, in comparison to direct bans upon um, uh, uh, the possession and use of guns in particular jurisdiction, you see that the indirect regulation of guns, whether that's um, zoning requirements, licensing, background check regimes, dealer requirements, those are statistically significantly more likely to be upheld as constitutional than a direct ban on guns um, would be. It's a story that I see, um, I, it, it, is, it is absolutely a, a story I, I see in, in, in um, conjunction with the material that I have gathered on vouchers. And I just give you a little um, uh, sense of, of what I found there. I mean, that when uh, policymakers are determining how they're going to design their policies in such a way as to insulate them from challenge, they can choose various different means. They can't give the money directly to a private school because uh, many of these schools are um, are religious in orientation, of course, that would be an establishment clause, uh, a clause question, but also because they, they faced um, uh, much, uh, many legal obstacles at the state level where um, there is constitutional language which um, uh, requires that state legislatures should provide, uh, have a duty to provide for a, an, an adequate public education, open education, different language. And so they are vulnerable to sort of constitutional challenge. And so they don't give it direct to the school, but they can give it via the parent through this voucher program. But they can also do it direct in this even more attenuated, complex way through the tax code, through tax expenditures, by providing a, a, you know, a, a tax benefit to particular organisations um, that are providing a benefit to the child, to parents spent on behalf of the child. So it's a very attenuated chain. And in that way, they're able to hide what they're doing. And what you find in the judicial data is that um, if you look over the course of the last 70 years old of voucher litigation, that the programs that most successfully hide the role of the state by using these tax expenditure delivery mechanisms, these privatized delivery mechanisms, they are more likely to pass in legislatures, they are less likely to be um, challenged as unconstitutional, and then they are less likely to be struck down if they are challenged. So there's a sort of triple whammy effect for that particular type of 
of policy design. And you can see this also in the, in the judicial data that the likelihood of voting in favor of a particular voucher program is much greater um, when the judge or justice is facing one of these more complex, attenuated, indirect policy delivery mechanisms than when they're facing a more direct one. Um, and this, as I say, is holding constant uh, and, and controlling for partisanship. So there is a role for partisanship, but I would say that in addition to partisanship, there is also a role for policy design. Um, and I, I think that's pretty significant. So I'd just like to give you some concluding observations about what I understand this project going, because this is a this is me, this is a, a, a you know forging a, a, a path with respect to these this conceptual apparatus, but also trying to plug this in, of course, to some of the really live debates that we're having um, current um, uh, currently about um, uh, uh, about the relationship between courts and um, uh, policymakers. So I'd say that this is a very careful. And it's a very iterative and it's a very strategic process. And it's one that has taken place over a number of years, over decades, where legislators have sought to um, uh, 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 re rewrite their laws in a way that will render them constitutional. And you can see this happening over time. Certainly we saw it with respect to the voucher case where they're going back to the drawing board again and again and again. And in my interviews, I sort of speak to policymakers and they say, right, you know, we, we realize this wouldn't work. We're gonna try it this way. And um, you sometimes have multiple iterations of rewrites in order to try to um, create a program that will pass constitutional muster. And also very concerted efforts to try to be careful about how they communicate about these programs as well. But you see this in respect to abortion laws. You see this in respect to gun um, control as well. I mean, you see Arizona, for instance, they um, they adopted a parental consent um, provision for their abortion law in 1989, and then they it was enjoined by the court, and so they rewrote it. Um, uh, they enacted a fresh statute. Louisiana has been repeatedly rewriting its hospitalization requirements over the course of a number of years as they are struck down again and again by the courts. And so this is an iterative game. It's a repeated set of interactions between advocates, state legislators, governors and the courts. Um, and um, of course, what we are witnessing now in these very highly polarized times is very, very powerful battles over who is going to control the courts. I mentioned, of course, these rhetorical strategies and policy design strategies that policymakers can adopt in an attempt to keep the, um, uh, to, to protect their, their programs. But of course, policymakers, as we all know, attempt to drag judges and justices towards their ideal points, their ideological um, uh, uh, ideal points by means of appointment strategies. And we've seen Republicans um, have been relatively successful in that um, uh, regard. And Maya Sen and Adam Bonica have got a, a wonderful book out about the judicial tug of war in which they are describing that precisely that dynamic between uh, in which partisans on both sides are trying to use this appointment strategy in order to um, shape the courts and to produce a more favorable outcome. Um, uh, but so until you are confident um, that you can tilt these decisions in your favor um, by means of these appointment strategies, I would say that these sort of delinking strategies can be very successful for you. I think as conservatives gain more of a toehold on the courts, especially on the course of the federal Supreme Court, we're looking now, I think, at, the, at a, a very serious challenge to Roe v. Wade framework. Um, 
it's 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 the turn of the other side to sort of adopt these indirect approaches. And um, so I think it's it's an approach that is adopted by people who are not confident of their reception on the courts. And I think it has wide application to a variety of different policy areas, whether we're thinking about the travel ban, whether we think about some of the messaging surrounding the citizenship question on the census, religious exemptions to anti-discrimination regulations, law and order policies, voter ID laws, and various other second generation barriers to um, voting um, and some of the justifications that are used that are evinced not only in public but also in court um, um, particularly to try to support um, the constitutionality of those programs and so I think that um, all of these battles are sh are sharpened absolutely by polarization that we see um, today but also I think that who actually takes on these these um, these strategies and the relative costs and benefits of those strategies are affected by the extent to which you feel that you have been able to tilt the legal marketplace in your favour to align in alignment as it were with the political marketplace in alignment with those those priorities so um i'll leave it there and i very much look forward to your um contributions and questions and suggestions this is a, a paper that is at a um a, a, a very much draft stage so i think it's it's coming at the right moment um, and uh, I'm delighted to hear more from you all. So thank you. Thank you very much, Ursula. That was uh, a very stimulating paper um, and I'm sure uh, everyone in the audience has, has a lot of questions. Um, I think I, I will ask people uh, simply to raise their hand uh, virtually um, and then I, I, I will happy be to, I'm sure Ursula can, can field your questions. Um, I think I will start off. I've got a few questions uh, myself, um, and I think perhaps the some of the, the first questions that I have are, uh, I guess, about the the the, the scope of this phenomenon. Uh, so first, really, what are the conditions in which policymakers might pursue this delinking strategy? And you you hinted at this towards the end, um, um, talking about the the alignment of the the electoral and the legal um, universes. And uh, and I just wonder is this is this it is is it as simple as when uh, policy maker or when when um, they can't uh, simply appoint favorable judges? Um, uh, and second, does it only occur with certain morality policies, um, particularly contentious uh, policies, culture war policies, um, or do we see it elsewhere? So I think that's my my my, my first question. Um, and actually, if you if you'd like a, I don't know if you want to answer that one first, or if, if shall I shall I give Happy you one to more one by one? Kind of... I mean, you know, or if okay, whatever sure. you prefer, Nadia. Uh, sure, go ahead, go ahead. With I guess answer that one, and 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 I can ask more questions later. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, I mean, thanks so much. I mean, I think that's really great. I think um, this this is a these are questions that I'm asking myself here now about the, the scope conditions of this argument. I think that. Um, there are very particular circumstances, I think, when these policies become especially um, attractive. I think that there, although I'm, I am scrupulous, or at least I'm, I'm trying to be as scrupulous as I can in this particular pro, in this particular um, paper about the uh, sim the symmetry of it. That, that these are not simply conservatives, but this is something. This is these are strategies that both conservatives and liberals have found it politically expedient, legally expedient to pursue at various different points. But it might be that um, uh, there are particular um, uh, aspects of this delinking process that I think are appeal 
more firmly to one side or the other in terms of their policy desiderata. So I think that probably if we are thinking about privatization and this sort of delegation um, uh, phenomenon, although as many of the scholars of delegated governance and so on have, have described, this is something that has been pursued by both liberal and conservative administrations. It is primarily a conservative approach. I think that um, I need to think very carefully about how I'm going to pitch this as to whether this is something that I I think of as, as an entirely symmetrical phenomenon. I don't want to, um, I think that that might help to just get one sense of the sort of scope, possible scope conditions about the circumstances in which it might be might be adopted. But I think that it happens under very specific circumstances and it does happen at a time at which you are not assured of a legal, of a secure legal cushion, for example, um, when you are not assured of a favorable response necessarily um, uh, in the courts, but um, but also in which you, you are able to make those arguments. And so I think that it, it's not, it's, um, it, it's at some, it's perhaps it's at that sort of midpoint that you need to feel that you can, that you will have a reception that your argument might have sway. And of course, judges, I would, I continue to argue, although there is, there are clearly institutions that are driven by uh, attitudinal considerations, partisan considerations, strategic considerations, they are susceptible to reason giving and to evidence and to ideas and the, the diffusion of those ideas that you can see from the policy the sort of political marketplace, as it were, from the sort of policy interchange into the legal realm. I think you can you can trace that out. You can see that in judicial opinions. And so there are situations in which I think some of these ideas, they gain power and they become um, they become something that judges need to and justices need to reckon with um, very seriously. And so <clears throat> under the circumstances in which you have those ideas that you can draw from and you are assured of some reception, but you are not assured of um, a positive response because you you haven't um, been able to fully pursue that appointment strategy or at least it hasn't been fully worked out and so you're not sure there's uncertainty there has to be some uncertainty there um that then that might be the, the time at which you pursue those um i mean it, it, there's two different ways of thinking about this i mean one way the way that a lot of the people who think about the submerged state and so on think about it, the puzzle that they map that they identify is why would you ever produce something that is so byzantine you know so sort of in complex and indirect and and so um, uh, you know, uh, sort of coy about what the government is truly doing for us and how could you find, of course that comes from a very particular perspective, which is the government ought, that the assumption is that the government ought to be given due credit for what it does and, uh, you know, so, so they have, that's how they set it up and that's how they sort of motivate the puzzle, but I mean, I suppose you could say that for some of these policymakers, and I, I mentioned, to come back to the conservative um, side of things, that they are, they are drawn to those sorts of, that, that sort of policymaking, um, I don't want to give the impression that judges and justices are fooled by any of this. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, okay, this might, Rachel. Um, yeah, this so, is, this, okay, this is, okay, so this is, go for it, and I'd like to hear more. Well, I, I mean, really, I'm just, I'm very curious about what, what this phenomenon tells us about, about judicial decision-making. So I would love to hear a version of this story from the judge's perspective, um, because I think you made a very, very convincing case that that this strategy is very deliberate, um, and a lot of the, the quotes that you that you showed, um, you know, demonstrated that 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 this is you know this is a very conscious strategy, and and as you said, you know, judges aren't 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 stupid, um, and and I just wonder if. Um, I, you know, do they do they always take these framings at face value, or is there something else going on? Um, I think um, one thing that I, I grapple with is 
that you know I, I don't seek to make any kind of determination about the sincerity or otherwise of the judges and justices who are making these determinations. Um, I think that would be I mean that's a that's a fool's errand. I mean there is no I don't think that that's something that that that, that um, uh, is susceptible really to 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 that this sort of investigation. But I I can observe the sorts of ideas that are. Um, identified and the sorts of considerations that the judges and justices evidently seem to be uh, to, to foreground and to seem, to seem to be important. And so in that way, you can get some sort of insight into um, how judges and justices are seeking to determine these um, cases. I think that, I mean, the, the area where I think that it's, it can be really powerful to, to draw in the strategic, um, I wouldn't say cynical, but but, but the sort of manip that, that 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 strategic approach to um, policy making, I think, is where you think well on the policymaker side, and to sort of try and um, uh, identify some of the considerations that they were thinking about when they were they were identifying these um, programs mm -hmm. and passing them and and seeking to litigate them. But yes, I think I mean I think that there's there's a whole lot of really brilliant literature on um, judges and justices and their um, their decision making with respect to um, uh, uh, case space. Um, and some of the attitudes that they might evince through their decision, their their um, uh, 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 decision making, and so I I would never I I, I mean I, I think I, I can be agnostic I think about the the relationship the sort of legalistic model versus the attitudinal model versus the, the strategic institutional maintenance model. I mean clearly judges and justices are um, uh, are, are influenced by all of these considerations. But they are constrained in terms of how they present that argument and how they interact with other branches and speak about and justify, publicly justify. It is an institution of public justification. That is what it is. I mean, it's a rational, they deal in rationales um, in terms of the sort of language that they can use um, in order to justify it. And so I, I, I don't I don't necessarily think that it gives us a I I I I need to be very careful here about trying to make making any kind of determination about what's going on inside those judges and justices' mm. heads. But I think that it is very valuable, I think, in terms of to, to, deter, to, to trace out the use of particular rationales and the, the way in which those things switch between these different arenas of contestation. So yeah. in the voucher case, I mean, the, the, the idea of child benefit theory is a really interesting one because that's one that is used to justify the constitutionality of these programs. It's, it's something that arises first in 1929 in a little known case um, in Louisiana. It gets picked up um, later by the, um, the uh, by other courts and starts to become this sort of major sort of um, uh, 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 kind of um, touchstone within that jurisprudence. But it's one that makes the leap back and forth to the political arena as well. And so policymakers are starting to use this language about child benefit, benefit to the child, not benefit to the school. You know, we're de again delinking. You know, we're not saying that the, uh, this is a benefit to a school. It's a benefit to an individual, a private individual. And so um, what's fascinating is to see how that works out in practice. Um, and, and you can only the only thing we have to go on here are uh, on the judicial side, of course, is the is to, is to, to note their votes and to note their uh, their public justifications for action. But I think that does give us quite a, a substantial toehold into how they're thinking about these um, these programs and, and how they're trying to reason it out. Yeah, and I think, I mean, probably ultimately continuing this project would give insight into that judicial decision-making literature, because I think this this doesn't fit into those those standard models, um, the, you know, the ideological and attitudinal and, 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 and so on. So I think I think you you could take that in a different direction. Um, I see Gareth has his hand up. Gareth, would you like to? Has he managed to unmute himself? <laughs> yes. 
Yes, okay. Um, I thought that was a really great paper, Ursula. Thank you very much. I, mean, I thought it was very closely reasoned, um, very articulately and attractively presented and very large in its, in its implications. Um, so it's a shame that I, I probably have rather an ignorant uh, observation um, to make about it. I mean, like you, I, I spent a long time immersed in um, the politics of schooling and somehow got out the other end. Um, but looking at judicial politics, I really became very, very cynical about judicial decision-making. I mean, I, I really just developed the sense that judges just made it up as they, as they went along. So I found your, your talk very heartening and sort of somewhat reassuring that the very fact that policy actors and legislators often have to go to such kind of often quite contorted ends in order to persuade judges and justices of their point of view really you know, makes me think, it really made me think in a much less cynical way that actually judges and justices, although they are ideological, they actually do take the law and the constitution seriously. And like I say, I, so thank you. I found that a really a, a heartening, heartening finding. If, if that was, if that is a finding you want me to take away from your paper. That's it. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, uh, well, thank you very much, Gareth, for that that, that contribution. I, I think that um, I mean, of course, the I have had some, a few critical responses to this paper, and I, I think that it it needs to um, it, it's it uh, sort of this is all this is all mulling around. But one of the um, responses that, um, that 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 I was that was offered was I thought was very reasonable. One was just you know you know what are you really saying? I mean, this is this is a you're simply saying that um, constitutional laws are upheld <laughs> and that unconstitutional ones are struck down. Um, um, but I, I think that, I mean, the, the, I suppose that the, the two responses that I would have to that are, first of all, that we need to do, we, I, I really want to focus in on the policymaker, the interaction element here, that this is not just about what judges and justices are determining um, uh, in a vacuum, but they are borrowing um, uh, uh, various languages and they are grasping onto rationales that are advanced by policymakers, by advocates um, in defense of these programs um, in a way that will help to, to justify that. Um, particular decision. It, I mean, it might be that they are doing so in an entirely cynical way. You know, that, that, um, um, uh, but the, 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 the result that there is at least some role for policy design does give us some hope, perhaps. Um, but if, if it's just a question of um, the legal, you know, the legality of the policy determines whether or not it's um, whether or not it's it's struck down as unconstitutional or upheld as constitutional. Well, um, that's not surprising at all. But um, I think that. Um, it, it that um, I make no determination about the constitution. I mean, I think that you know, I, 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 that is a question for legal scholars entirely about whether or not these things are truly constitutional or not, and whether this is indeed an, a, a, a true reading, whatever that is. I and mean, there is such a thing as a, the, you know, this is a, a clear way of determining what is and what is isn't constitutional. I think what we can observe interestingly is that when you have policymakers creating these programs. In these in these fashions, with a view to thinking about how they're going to to um, have them uh, decide what, what court decisions might come up down the road, that 
that that tells us something quite interesting, actually, um, that is distinct from just simply the, the observation that, you know, constitutional laws are upheld and unconstitutional ones are struck down. Um, but thank you very much for your, for your extremely um, complimentary um, comments. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I've given you some hope. Um, uh, yes. I, I'm going to disagree with the whoever it was that that um, that criticized the paper on those grounds, um, because I, I think I mean, one thing that you do um, and that that's that's one of the most interesting things about the paper, the most intriguing things is, is that you're really tracking the development of of, of a change in in policy discourse or legal discourse. Um, uh, and and actually, that's, that's related to another question I have, which is which is whether or not you noticed um, a, a change in time, um, and and whether or not this phenomenon increases in periods of polarization. Um, so, do we see this? Um, I, I I don't know if you if you if you look for that in your in your analysis, um, but um, but I know your data sets go back to what 1932 or um, it, go, it goes back to yeah. the 34. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know. Um, you know, have have you seen this strategy uh, increase in recent years, um, or in, in in recent decades, or or do we see it? Um, do do we see it being used in in, in the thirties as well? Um, so I think that overall, um, uh, so I, I, so there there is an overall time trend. I certainly found this certainly with respect to the voucher case. You see that over time, that judges and justice is becoming much more sympathetic to. Mm -hmm voucher programs over time and you see that the development of that supportive legal cushion um, and I think that that is um, uh, we see some similar dynamics with respect to these other um, areas of Jewish prudence as well um, and I think that maybe gives us a sense so I, and that's natural you'd expect that to happen right that, that over time as this supportive um, case law is built up it it enables but it also constrains judges and justices who may be otherwise you know otherwise disposed to be sort of you know um uh, to, to feel differently or to, to decide differently in these cases to, to to um take up that rationale and to and to um uh, uh you know consider it very carefully and perhaps it might you know at the margin affect what they are you know what they get what they are um de deciding and so yes there's the time dynamic i think it's it's, it's that these things, there's two things that go on, obviously stare decisis, right? That sort of the, the, the reliance on these previous um, decision decisions, but also I think the diffusion of some of these rationales and that sort of very, you know, policymakers again and again, trying again, working it out, thinking, okay, so how, what can we, what can we do that will enable us to um, try again and, and, and see how it goes in court? So I think that there is a, there's a time trend where people are sort of getting better at this. But the thing that that I find interesting about the time thing, Nadia, is that it relates back to your first question about the scope conditions, because I think that there are there's there's a there must be a tipping point at which you're you are so confident of that legal cushion that you are able to you are freer to experiment with more direct ways of getting at your at what you want to do. And sometimes, of course, as we've seen with Roe, um, we've seen you know blatant you know direct defiance, open defiance of the uh, constitutional. Mm -hmm. Of, of constitutional law and norms and current case law, right? Where we have the we have um, uh, you know bans upon abortion that were constructed, and their 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 um, supporters are very candid. It's the opposite of this attenuating, you know, delinking rhetoric and all that stuff. But they're saying they're candid. This is designed to be an arrow in the heart of Rome, and that's mm -hmm. what we want to do. Um, and so they're trying to draw the challenge. And I think that um, one thing I'd like to think about more is the circumstances under which or the, the, the sort of political calculus that might underpin the, the sort of opposite 
the opposite sort of approach where you're sort of saying, right, I'm going to defy direct and defiant. And I think we saw that, of course, something that I was thinking about a lot with respect to the Trump presidency, because, of course, that is a presidency that, that in many ways embodies that direct and defiant um, approach to constitutional law norms. Um, but I think that it's something that is more widespread. I think it tells us something much broader about the, the Republican Party in particular. Um, um, so um, I think that there, there are probably circumstances under which it is expedient to take that other approach. Um, uh, it might be that you need to draw the challenge um, in order if you're if you're confident that you've tilted the legal marketplace in your favor. Yeah, I was uh, I, I should say my one of my first thoughts when when the when the Texas law um, uh, uh, came out was was not not only that it was I thought it was it would be likely to multiply in other states. Um, but also that the form of the law, um, this this kind of circumventing of of of, of state responsibility, um, I just started wondering how quickly and and in which other policy areas um, people would start to take that. Um, so I don't, I, and I guess I mean, in a sense, that's sort of what this paper is about: is 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 tracking that since since the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether there are others that you've been thinking about in terms of you know sort of areas where this might briefly be applied. I mean, I think that I, I'm wary of, of, of concept creep. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it needs for it to be meaningful. I think it needs to have purchase. And I think that it needs to be able to, I think, you know, I, still sort of working out the sort of boundaries of this, 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 mm -hmm. um, this, this concept. And I think that maybe, um, I mean, I think that there are ways that we can systematize. Um, I've shown some of those and some of these ideas, direct and indirect, think about different forms of regulation, but it might be that um, they're, they're different sorts of things that I'm describing that maybe it would be better to, sep to, to separate those things yeah. out in order to better um, identify the conditions under which these, um, these, these things might apply. Yeah, because I suppose I mean you you began the talk by um, by talking about creative lawmaking, um, creative legislation, and policymaking, and uh, and I think that's certainly the case with the with the Texas law. Um, but I it, it, now that I'm thinking about the actual structure of the Texas law, it's I, I'm not 100% convinced that it actually fits under the under the delinking because I don't think that the 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 motives um, are are in question. Um, and I don't think the effects are in question, um, but it is certainly a, a, an example of 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 creative creative policy making, creative framing, so that when it gets to the Supreme Court, uh, it's it it's it gives the judges an opportunity to say, well, we're not we're not exactly going against precedent. Um, this is this is a different formulation. Uh, so I'm not. So I guess I'm. I yeah. yeah I think. I think it's, I think I think maybe one of oh Gareth, do you have something on this? No, you just got so you still got your hand up by the way. You've got a legacy hand right there. Um just Oh no, it's a new oh, hand. New oh hand. it's a new hand. Okay. Well, okay, so I'll just I'll just say on this. So I mean I think um uh um yeah, I, it it needs to be the, the 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 question of animus and of intention, I think maybe that's playing the spoiler role here. And I'm wondering where this fits because I think that um the uh, there are so many questions right now. It's not just um, conservatives, of course, that are on the back foot in some circumstances in relation to the question of whether this, whether a particular policy is motivated by religious or racial animus, but also liberals, actually. I mean, the, the, the ongoing discussion about Blaine amendments, no aid provisions, and the, that we've got a big case coming up. Um, we've had several cases um, uh, over the last couple of years, Espinosa versus Montana, 
um, some of the Trinity Lutheran case, cases, these cases where the Supreme Court has said that um, these amendments are, uh, which are prohibit public aid to denominational institutions of all kinds, including religious um, schools, um, most, most famously, are motivated by anti-Catholic animus. Um, um, and there's a lively empirical debate as to whether that is indeed the case. I, I, I actually, I'm on the fence there, but I would say that at least some of them are, were passed at a time when, um, uh, 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 before, uh, significantly before um, the sort of major wave of anti-Catholic um, sort of um, uh, antipathy. So anyway, I, I, there, there are different opinions about this, but certainly that's a, that's a, a live debate. And it's one that puts the liberal liberals on the back foot, those who are seeking to restrict the uses to which these programs are being being put. Um, and so so I, I want to talk about animus because I think animus is very much part of this um, conversation about the determining the constitutionality of a lot of these programs, whether it actually is motivated by this or that. Of course, we we. Um, but it's a different sort of so there's, you can hide your intentions. I think that's the sort of makes sense. But it's not about when you're privatizing, when you're delegating, you're not actually necessarily hiding the role of the state in the sense that you're not you it's not a, it's not um a secret necessarily it might be difficult for, for for ordinary folk to understand and there's a whole brilliant literature on the co political consequences of the fact that many people are misunderstand the nature and purpose and indeed the, the the existence in some cases of these sorts of programs but in court it's not about that it's not about hiding I, maybe maybe the word i've used the word obscuring a lot in the paper it doesn't maybe it shouldn't be that but it's 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 about indirectness i think um and and i think perhaps maybe maybe taking words like subtle or obscure maybe give you the impression uh, or might give the reader the impression that this is this is about pulling the wool over someone's eyes but it really isn't i think it's it's mm -hmm. about um it, what it, what what intervenes what organizations or inter, in, institutions intervene between the particular um between authoritative government action and that's why I'm sort of melding into that sort of idea of intentional government so actually that's where the animus stuff but maybe it's a bit of a stretch and the policy program um at issue and the output of that policy program so yeah I, I, I think it, I, I think it's yeah. still mushy but it needs yeah this is really helpful yeah, no, because in, in, in that case, then the Texas law fits perfectly, um, because even though we know everyone knows what's going on and what everyone's motives are, it's still out of the reach of the state by, 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 its, by its structure. Um, Gareth, do you want to jump in? All right. Um, so this is, I mean, it's not really reasonable to expect you to be able to answer this, Ursula. So it, <laughs> but it's possible that actually that Nestor or Nigel or Nadia or other people whose names I can't see but are in the audience might have a thought on this. Um, this. This model of judicial politics that you've been outlining, I mean, is it like utterly unique in global terms? Are there any other polities that have a form of judicial politics that even vaguely resembles this? I mean, I think that's a really, um, excellent question, one that I'm afraid I'm completely ill-equipped to answer, as you quite rightly identify. But I would say, I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, a lot of, certainly the, and it comes back to Nadia's question about the, the choice of the, you know, the, the scope conditions in terms of the policy areas, in terms of the sort of the, the rights at issue. I mean, I think that it's very, very rooted in the American political development tradition. It's very much rooted in the American 
um, uh, 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 politics, which of course has always foregrounded the role of the courts, and those my, that many in the audience I'm sure, know even you know great better than I do, um, but just that 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 peculiar role that, that courts play and also the peculiar role um, with respect to the constitutional um, inheritance as well, that that plays a really crucial sort of causal role in this particular discussion. So, um, I, I, but, but I think, I, so I think the dynamics though are the same. I think that, I think that the, the kind of the, the, um, the motive, some of the motivations and I think some of the, the, the that strategic the array of strategic options that face policymakers and legislators when they come to interact with one another. I think that that is, that is a place where it could potentially tra could um, translate abroad. But I think that the substantive discussions and the substance of the specific, the, spe the, the specifics of the, the ideas, which I think are really important, actually, the rationales, the specifics of those ideas are quite, um, you know, uh, they are, they are derived from that American Political tradition. I think it's quite difficult for me to to see how those would translate. Um, I don't know what others around the room have. Whether, of course, we have a we have a, a comparative conversation here. Are there? I don't know whether there are others who have different perspectives. Well, I mean, I I, I don't have an answer either. But I, I think one thing that your argument does bring out, um, what this entire phenomenon brings out, is 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 just how deeply litigious America's. Uh, political culture is, which is, I mean, we something we we already know, but but it just it it, it emphasizes that, um, and that that these kinds of strategic decisions um, are going to and 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 complex um, uh, strategies um, that that is an effect um, of 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 having such a litigious political culture, but but yeah, I don't I I I'm not the person either to to uh, to respond. I, I'm not an expert on judicial politics, but I think there is something very peculiar about the, the, the relationship between policymakers, citizens, and the judiciary in the US. I mean, the, it, there is something in the, in the, in the nature of, this, of the interaction that is very unique, I think. I mean, in, I, I, from my point of view, in many countries, you're going to find these kind of interactions between policymakers, citizens, and the, the judiciary. But, but the, the way in which that interaction happens is very, in, in the US, is very unique, I think. I, mean, I guess it's very unique because of the nature of the political institutions in, in, in America, I guess. But I'm not an expert on this, so better to shut up. I have another uh, question that I, I is really beyond the scope of your of your paper, Ursula. So so um, you might not have a direct answer, but I just wonder. Um, I, I I'm always preoccupied with the unintended consequences of of policies, and I think in particular because what you are tracing is um, are, are creative, uh, creatively structured policies. My my guess would be that the 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 danger of having unintended consequences would be relatively higher than than in standard policy making um so i just wonder if um you know as you were compiling your databases if you came across any any particular um uh policies that you could now look back with hindsight and think oh you know that particular creative uh creative twist in in the structure of the policy 20 years later or 30 years later had a very unintended, un either either desired or undesired consequence? I think that's a really great question. I mean, I suppose it, it's a great question, partly because the whole, the, the, um, 
the whole of this discussion is about um, the ability to try to um, uh, uh, to uh, uh, deny a particular intention, to, to describe a particular set of policy effects as mere spillover, as externalities, um, and not as a, a central part of that um, uh, uh, intent, something that is, in, that is explicitly intended in a particular policy. I mean, I think that um, so, so you're thinking about situations in which you know we might we might think about broader inter- unintended consequences. I mean, I think that there are there are enormous number of this. I'm, I focus entirely here on the legal um, consequences of a particular um, set of political political strategic maneuvers, mm-hmm. but of course there are political consequences as well. I mean, Alexander Fatel Fernandez has done some brilliant work on policy we- uh, feedback as a political weapon. I'm sure you're probably familiar with this. This idea that there are political consequences. Um, to some of these efforts, um, for instance, you know, he's thinking here about efforts to sort of make it more challenging for unions to operate, which of course has enormous partisan consequences um, for political, the terms of political engagement because of the role of the unions with, within the Democratic Party. Um, so he's thinking about ways in which you can try to demobilize your opponents um, and to bolster your cause um, through these um, sort of, you know, um, <clears throat> sneaky um, sneaky ways, um, uh, or maybe not so sneaky. Actually, maybe you're quite open about exactly what you're doing. Um, <laughs> but but um, so I think that there are um, there's certainly a, a, a very rich and interesting literature on some of the political consequences of, of all of this. I mean, I think that there are. There, I don't talk at all. This is a story about elites, and we there are there are very important consequences. I think in the public realm, in terms of public attitudes, in terms of behaviours, in terms of attitudes towards democracy. Um, uh, 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 and the general sense that, 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 is, that there, there is a diminishment of trust when people are unable to follow the, the, the sort of links um, between authoritative government action and particular set of programmes and, and outputs and so on. Of course, um, um, that's not, I mean, there are many, many areas of policy. I mean, we, I don't think we can underestimate the extent of public um, ignorance, not only in the United States, but anywhere actually of, of, of exactly the, the ins and outs of particular policy making. Um, but I think that it's, that problem is particularly acute for these areas where, um, you know, the policy is pursued in these indirect fashions. So, yeah, there's a whole load of consequences in terms of, I don't know if this is getting to your question, there's consequences in terms of public attitudes, there's consequences in terms of political yeah. um, institutions and in terms of the terms of political engagement. I think that, um, uh, that I mean, I, I suppose that I, I think that I do think I do still believe, although I certainly um, think that judges and justices are um, political actors. Evidently, evidently, they are political actors. They are acting um, uh, uh, in many ways across, along partisan and ideological lines. That there is still a role for ideas, and those ideas can take on um, a significance later on that can be quite consequential. Um, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of, of, of what what is available to the um, uh, terms, the, 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 you know, the, those who are uh, um, arguing a particular case or fighting a particular, particular political battle, and so it, it can sort of structure the terms of engagement. I mean, I think that's a really vague answer. I, I, I can't give you a specific um, uh, instance, but I think that um, there are, of course, all these spillovers in all of these other different areas of political life as well beyond the legal realm. I certainly don't I don't don't suggest otherwise. Um, this is just um, one way into that. Those those questions. Terrific. I, um, does anyone from the audience have any have any more questions or or thoughts or comments? Oh, Nestor. 
Yeah, I have a question, but I, I don't know if it's a silly question, but uh, um, you were comparing vouchers versus taxes. And, 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 and your findings are kind of different when you focus on vouchers <laughs> or taxes. Uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, I understand completely well your argument there. So I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more on that because I, I, I guess there is something about the salience of the issue that could make a difference in terms of the, this uh, argument that you're making. Yeah, okay, glad you mentioned it. So um, salience, yes, but it's not playing the causal role that maybe you think it is. So there's a distinction that we wanna make between a, a regular voucher program in which you're offering the, the, the fund to the parent uh, through direct appropriation. You directly appropriate the money, you provide that money as part of a scholarship fund to the parent, the parent spends it on behalf of the child. That's a relatively simple way of thinking about it. Um, but there are these more complex approaches in which instead of directly appropriating the money, you are providing that benefit through tax expenditures. You're deducting the taxation that you would otherwise collect on donations to organizations known as scholarship tuition organizations, which are then providing the benefit to the parent to spend on behalf of the child at the school. So it's a it's a it's a different, it's a it's a different mode of funding that particular um, program. Now, there are those who hew to the idea of tax expenditure analysis who say that those two sorts of um, uh, 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 appropriate uh, uh, funding are equivalent to one another. Um, the, 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 a direct appropriation is equivalent to a tax expenditure um, because you're providing a particular, you are deducting tax, you are providing a particular benefit to a particular set of uh, people. Um, um, but then there are others that say that, no, these are not equivalent because actually this is private money. This is never, it is not actually governmental um, money because it's simply, it's, it's, it's money that would otherwise be collected in taxes, of course, but it's not it's not equivalent to an appropriation. So they are not for, for legal purposes, but also perhaps for political purposes as well. Um, so um, though that's the distinction. But you, you mentioned salience. I think that that's, that absolutely has huge consequences politically because those tax expenditures are far less um, salient than regular vouchers are. And one of the things I find when I was talking to all my voucher, uh, you know, my interviewees is that, you know, you don't say the word voucher for God's sake. You know, this is just, this is really um, a dirty word. You know, you don't say it. Um, and so that there are all these various coy ways in which you can describe those, that, um, those uh, programs. And also if you use a tax spending, you can just talk about tax credit, tax credit scholarships, that sort of thing, it sounds better. Um, but also it obscures, it's less salient to people and it's not clear where that, um, you know, in terms of the funding source. And so it's easier for both conservatives and for liberals, actually, um, to justify that in straightened financial times and where you've got a very difficult, you know, veto prone system and all the rest of it. So, um, you know, it, 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 there, there is a political difference, but I think that it's not about the salience that, that, that is, is where it, it matters in court. It matters in court um, because it furnishes a rationale if you are using these indirect mechanisms it furnishes a rationale to judges and justices um it that, that that can be used to support or oppose a particular um the you know to justify a vote in favor or of or in an opposition to a particular program um so so that's where i think it goes it's not that judge yeah so um that's i think the role that it's playing but i hope that's that's laid, laid those out clearly Ursula, I just had a, a, a thought and I, it's not terribly well thought through. So I, I, I could, after I say it, I might decide that it was not a particularly helpful thought, but I'm just wondering if, um, 
thinking about the kinds of policies that are subject to this particular phenomenon, this, this delinking, um, I, I wonder if religious, how do I put this? Um, policies that are, that are uh, on the religious secular divide are more, um, will be more subject to delinking. And I guess my logic is, is the following, which is that um, religious groups will need to reframe their policy goals in secular terms um, in, order in order for it to, 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 to succeed, for a policy to succeed. Um, so, and I'm struck by the fact that two of your three examples, um, so if we include uh, uh, religious vouchers, school vouchers, um, uh, are, 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 are religious. Um, basically, or, or sort of based in religious morality, um, uh, whereas gun gun controls is, is is not as kind of an outlier. But the other two are 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 drawn strictly along uh, uh, religious lines, um, or maybe, maybe not strictly, but um, but I, I wonder if that if that's a, a case. That I, I'm just I haven't thought this completely through, so you might it, you might think otherwise. But I just I, I wonder if if you'll see more of this delinking. With regards to 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 religious, um, uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking a little bit also of, of John John Rawls's uh, conception of, of 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 public reason and where he says you know people of different faiths can articulate their 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 policy desires, um, but they have to do it using the public language that everybody shares, which is basically civic civic language. Um, so yeah, so that's. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. And that's a very intriguing thought. But, you know, I suppose, I, I, I mean, I think that they they are religious in different ways, though, I mean, in the sense that I think that the, 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 with, the, with respect to the voucher case, I mean, there's clearly an establishment um, obstacle. And so the question there about the proper relationship between church and state is is, is ever present. And it's, it is absolutely sort of really propels a lot of the action on this issue i think that the abortion case of course as we all know is is, is only very recently something that has become something that is di that divides um, that has become a partisan issue but also has become a a, a very um uh you know uh, uh, plugs into that sort of culture war um distinction between the, the religiously orthodox and the progressives um because you know that that it didn't used to be the case that that was that that it, the, the dividing lines were so stark about that. I mean, Andy Lewis has got some great work on this and about how abortion politics becomes um, uh, part of these conversations. And so, I think that you know, from the point of view of actors, yeah. So I guess I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I mean, they are, they are, they're absolutely, they are religious. And they do invoke this religious, these um, religious questions, but I think they probably do so for slightly different reasons um but but mm. i think that you know i mean i you know i need to work this out i mean i think that there are a lot of things that, that that there are other possible applications of this concept maybe in other areas where religious exemptions and stuff and anti-discrimination legislation and stuff that where it might be relevant as well um I, I i need to think more about that but i think it's a really intriguing thought mm. so so thanks for that great well th i i so i we could probably keep talking about this forever. Um, does um, but I think we should probably wrap up. Um, I don't know if anybody from the audience has any any further questions, or comments or thoughts. I think Marietta um, posted a a comment in the chat. Um, terrific. Yeah. So I and I'm just going to second Marietta's uh, comment and say um, it, it really was an excellent presentation. Very interesting 
very well explained, very clear, and 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 really quite intriguing. And I think it it really helps us think through, rethink a lot of a lot of these standard literatures, as 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 you said. I mean, both about policy making, but then also about judicial decision making. Um, so uh, so thank you very much. And um, uh, yeah, I'd just like to give you a round of round of applause. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to present, um, and uh, you know, just delighted to be able to join the group. So so thanks. Terrific, um, and thank, and Nestor, I can't. This is this is our final um, uh, final one of this term, final seminar of this term. Um, but I guess we'll be resuming uh, this seminar series in January. I'm not sure what the first one. Uh, yes, in January we're going to have uh, Diego Sanchez and Cochea from Oxford. He's going to be presenting his book about inequality. Excellent. So, yeah. I think it's going to be. Sorry, I don't, I don't remember the, the date exactly. The date of the, I think it's uh, the second half of January. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thanks everyone for coming and uh, I look forward to see, seeing people in, in person in the new year. So, Goodbye, everyone. Have a nice evening. Uh, thank you. Thank very much. you. Bye. Bye.